or frequent across the country. For WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Was it Caesar Chavez? Maybe it was Dorothy Day. Some will say Dr. King or Gandhi set them on their way. No matter who your mentors are, it's pretty plain to see. If you've been to jail for justice, you're in good company. Have you been to jail for justice? I won't shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down always to take a stand. In World War II, a black veteran who had been demobbed, demobilized, but was still in uniform, was beaten so badly in South Carolina that he was blinded. That's what's made this country and really this world great, is when people just like us can't take it anymore and are perfectly willing to file out into the streets, put our bodies on the line, and if necessary, fill the jails to get a better world. And it was like the words were there. Bruno Mars had just come out with the song. And like everything that I write, the spirit hits me what the tune is. It dictates what the tune is going to be. And right off, it said Uptown Funk. Hey, welcome to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. Elise Bryant is away this week. On today's show, we've kind of got two trains running. There's a Black History Month theme, which you'll hear reflected in folk singer Cy Khan's story behind Black, Red, White, and Blue, Cy's song about a black World War II veteran. You'll also hear it in Campbell's Slave Pen, a brand new song from the R.J. Phillips Band about the Baltimore slave trade and liberation of the captives by Union troops during the Civil War. The second theme is the story behind the song, our ongoing series of interviews with musicians. We've got two today. The first, as I mentioned, is Cy Khan on Black, Red, White, and Blue. And the second is from Lynn Marie Smith, the Detroit diva, who tells us about how she came up with Union Funk. You're going to want to get your dancing shoes for that one. We've also got a special treat, a live recording of legendary folk singer Anne Feeney, who died four years ago this month, accepting the Joe Hill Award and performing two songs at the 2005 Great Labor Arts Exchange. Plus, the Labor Force podcast Michael Struken on his favorite labor song and on Labor History in Two. The year was 1818. That was the day that abolitionist Frederick Douglass chose to celebrate his birthday. Before we kick off the show, WPFW's Winter Pledge Drive is underway. Our goal is $500 this hour. So if you like and appreciate what you hear, please make a contribution now to ensure that the station can continue to bring us to your ears. Giving is as easy as going to WPFWFM.org or you can call 800-222-9739. Please be as generous as you can to help us reach our goal of $500 this hour. Here's the R.J. Phillips Band with Campbell's Slave Pen, their brand new song about the Baltimore slave trade and the liberation of the captives by Union troops during the Civil War. We're held in Campbell sleeping 
Slave Pen from the R.J. Phillips Band. Between 1808 and the abolition of slavery in Maryland in 1864, an estimated 30,000 people were, quote-unquote, sold south from Baltimore. Before we go into our next segment, if you've already given to WPFW's Winter Pledge Drive, thank you. If not, or if you'd like to make another contribution... Please take a moment now. Just go to WPFWFM.org or call 800-222-9739. Please be as generous as you can to help us reach our goal of $500 this hour. You're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW 89.3 FM, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1818. That was the day that abolitionist Frederick Douglass chose to celebrate his birthday. He could not be sure of the exact date of his birth because he was born into slavery. He escaped from slavery and became one of the leading black writers and orators for the cause of abolition. After the Civil War, he continued to speak and write, demanding justice for African Americans and working people. For example, in 1871, he penned an article against increasing demands for cheap labor. He wrote, Cheap labor is a phrase that has no cheering music for the masses. Those who demand it and seek to acquire it have but little sympathy with common humanity. It is the cry of the few against the many. When we inquire who are the men who are continually vociferating for cheap labor, we find the rich and powerful, the crafty and scheming, those who live by the sweat of other men's faces and who have no intention of cheapening labor by adding themselves to the laboring forces of society. It is the deceitful cry of the fortunate against the unfortunate. Labor is a noble word and expresses a noble idea. Today, we still face a demand for ever cheaper labor. Business leaders and their political friends fight against efforts to raise the minimum wage. From 2011 to 2015, eight states scaled back their prevailing wage laws, 19 reduced pensions, and 15 eroded collective bargaining rights. As these attacks on working people grow, it seems that Frederick Douglass's reminder that labor is a noble word is needed now more than ever. We plant the food, we drive the cab, we load the ship. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Next up, folk singer Cy Khan's story behind the song Black, Red, White, and Blue, Cy's song about a black World War II vet. (laughs) 
So I'm going to start in a very strange place, but it's going to work out, I think. Okay, so when I was still performing, one of my riffs in a concert was, you know, I, I think this is the moment, and I would regret to announce that I am no longer a candidate for president of the United States. And the audience goes, oh, no. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I realized. I said, and I have only one regret, which is I wanted to be president so I could implement a national good jobs for everybody. Good jobs, union jobs. So as a private citizen, my new program is a full employment program for ethnomusicologists. And so what I've done is in... Many, many, many of my songs, I've done the musical equivalent of literary references. It's maybe like four notes here, three words here. And I estimate that it'll take five ethnomusicologists at least three years to locate all of these references. There's probably a hundred of them. There's one, for example, in, in my song, To Hear Doc Watson Play, I sing... If I had a gold watch and chain, I would pawn them any day, right? That's a reference to Doc's song. Yeah, I would pawn you my gold watch and chain, love. I will pawn you my gold diamond ring, right? The conoscenti, some people will recognize it, but most won't. But it's there, right? And the ethnomusicologists can go digging. There is a song called Columbus Stockade Blues, and it goes... Way down in Columbus, Georgia, want to be back in Tennessee. Way down in Columbus, Georgia, friends have turned their back on me. Go and leave me if you wish you never let you cross my mind. In my heart, you love another. Leave me, little darling, I don't mind. It's a, you know, country classic. I start black, red, white, and blue with way down in Columbus, Georgia. Many people recognize it, but then it goes, that's where I was born and raised, right? So that's that's a hidden musical reference. So And that's the song. The song is a tribute to my friend Harrison Williams. Harrison, what was called the associate county agent in Harris County, Georgia, which is the county directly north of Columbus County, where Columbus, Georgia is located, right? The associate county agent or deputy county agent in the 60s meant the black county agent. The Department of Agriculture was segregated, and so there was a white county agent who worked with the white farmers and a black county agent who worked with with the black farmers. Harrison, however, did some work with white farmers, although he wasn't supposed to, He was a World War II veteran, and the song goes on, it says, way down in Columbus, Georgia, that's where I was born and raised. In the fields around Fort Benning, I spent all my younger days, right? And Fort Benning is is where the Rangers are trained, because it's a major U.S. fort right outside of Columbus. It says, wartime came and I enlisted, gave my age as 18 years. Way down in Columbus, Georgia, that's where I was born and raised. In the fields around Fort Benning, I spent all my younger days. Wartime came and I enlisted, I gave my age as 18 years. When they asked for men for combat, I was first. He, he enlisted when he was about 15, but but he was, in the old freeze, he was a giant of a man. He was tall, he was big, not fat, just strong as hell, strong as hell. And of course, you know, by the middle of World War II, they weren't asking any questions, you know. If you didn't look obviously 12 years old, they took you. They said, and when they asked for men for combat, I was first to volunteer. He didn't volunteer just to be an infantryman. He volunteered to be a ranger. That's a really, really dangerous job. 
I don't know what year he signed up, but I can't find him on the web. And everybody I knew then is gone. Um, but he signed up to be a ranger. And he was in the second wave at Utah Beach during the Normandy invasion. He's one of the very few that survived. Right? And and they all knew they were being trained for, I mean, you know, there was, you know, great secretiveness around the Normandy invasion. I was in the Fighting 317th Military History Detachment in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam era. Reserves. Let's be clear. I was trying to stay, trying like hell to stay out of, out of, out of uh, Vietnam. And I talked my way into the reserves because I could type. That's another story. The ship's headed for England where the staging area was for Normandy. One of the other things that I learned, that the Allied forces built something like 500 plastic battleships, you know, blow up battleships, and that they anchored offshore 100 miles north of, of the beaches, right? So that the Nazis would do air surveillance, see all these battleships down there, and think, we know where it's coming. They moved their forces north. So kind of cool. Um, they the ships disembarked for from Fort Gordon, which is in Augusta, Georgia, and Fort Gordon is on the ocean on the far east side. When he was put on a train to go across Georgia, knowing that they were going to Fort Gordon, he is in uniform. He's a ranger. He's going to fight in the Normandy invasion. Although he probably he probably knows there's an invasion, probably not where or when. Whenever they would come through a town. The white officers would walk through their cars and close all the blinds because in these little rural Georgia towns, the white residents were infuriated by the, by the sight of black soldiers in combat uniforms. And Harry Truman didn't desegregate the armed forces until 1948, so this is after World War II, um, and most black troops worked in graves registration, which is taking care of the bodies. They worked as cooks. They worked in all the menial jobs, but not in combat. There were black combat soldiers in World War I, and war, but they, they were not recognized, you know? And and so they would, so as not to upset the good white residents of these small Georgia towns, they would close the curtains, right? So the, the chorus goes, on a troop train bound for Utah Beach and the bloody fields of France, rolling through those southern Georgia towns. As the trains pulled through the little towns, they closed the curtains tight. It wouldn't do to see a black man in his country's uniform. On a troop train bound for Utah Beach, the bloody fields of France, Rolling past those southern Georgia farms As the trains pulled through the little towns They'd close the curtains tight It wouldn't do to see a black man In his country's uniform I mean, it's a terrible history that, And, you know, and black veterans Returning from World War One. 1919 is the Red Summer in which mobs set upon returning black veterans and lynched them. Um, I can't remember his name, but in World War II, a black veteran who had been demobbed, demobilized, but was still in uniform, was beaten so badly in South Carolina that he was blinded. And uh, this this became one of the impetuses for Truman, who grew up a segregation. It's part of the impetus for him to sign the day the order desegregating the armed forces. So. Now, I worked with Harrison for a number of years. I was, was I, like 26 years old. I was the deputy director of a million dollar community action agency that covered eight rural southern uh, counties in Georgia on the west. On the west, that's the, the main town was LaGrange, the home of Callaway Mills, now Callaway Golf Course, which figured in a strategy I came up with during the Brookside strike, which is, um, probably willing to talk about now, not on this, not today, because the statue of, you know, but the Southernisms that because it's an oral culture, people say things the way they hear them, not the way they read them. So people here, black and white, talk about the statue of limitations, right? The statue of limitations has run out. So um, 
Harrison was one of the founders of the West Georgia Farmers Cooperative. It was an association of black farmers and it was part of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which was run by my friend Ralph Page for many years. And, um, and I, I played a role because Ralph was teaching school and he, he um, African-American, he loved country music and he would sneak over at night under cover of darkness to my, my half house in LaGrange, which I was ready for 35 bucks a month. And we'd drink moonshine to listen to country music. And one day I said to him, Ralph, you don't want to be a school teacher. You, you want to be an organizer and a civil rights activist like your daddy. And he said, you know, you're right. And he became the head of the Southern Federation of Southern Corpus, a wonderful guy. I've, I've known so many wonderful people. So I got to know Harrison because we were both working with the, the co-ops. And one of the staff of the co-ops got him, Tom McBride. And on the day, I think it was the day that Wallace stood in the doorway and did a segregation now, segregation forever speech. Um, Tom and I were at a 40-foot flatbed truck, and we were driving it through Montgomery with Fort Army surplus tractors we had picked up in the west of Alabama for the co-op. So, you know, lots, lots of adventures. And, you know, and I remember one time, you know, Harrison had a fish pond on his place, and I remember going fishing with him. I don't think more than once or twice. Those days I used to fish. And um, so he took this, and this is what I, I think it was a long time after we got to know each other that he told me this story. The other story he told me, he said he, he said he, he had, a, he went through the war with a white buddy. Now, I, I mistrust my memory on this, or I mistrust something because I don't understand how he could have gone through the war with a white buddy if the army was still segregated. But um, lots of memories, man. It's, it's, it's also very, this is also very emotional for me, as you can tell. So soldiers were demobbed, demobilized at Fort Dix in New Jersey. And then, you know, then they took trains home. And Harrison said he, when they left Fort Dix, he was sitting next to his white buddy. He said, when they crossed the Mason-Dixon line, his buddy got up and went into the white car. So, so that's that's the other part of the story, right? And um, so the song continues. It's got two verses. It goes, in the landing boats on D-Day, I was in the second wave. That was true. All the men who fought beside me stayed in France in a soldier's grave. White is for the rows of tombstones, blue the sky over Normandy. Red is for the blood of black men shed to make the white man free. On a true train bound for Utah Beach and the bloody fields of France rolling through the southern Georgia towns, when the trains pulled through the little towns, they'd close the curtains tight. It wouldn't do to see a black man in his country's uniform. That's that's the story. I listened to it last night, probably for the first time in 20 years. Um, I'm amazed that I was able to play the guitar that well. I couldn't recreate that today. And I was also surprised because I said, red is for the blood of black folk, said to make the white folk free. And I, I think, thinking back, I think I was probably being gender conscious in some way or trying to be more open because obviously African-American women died too. And, you know, it, it, we're, we're in, in World War II in many different capacities. This is forgotten, right? This is forgotten. Columbus, Georgia, that's where I was born and raised. In the fields around Fort Benning, I spent all my younger days. Wartime came, 
And I enlisted I gave my age As 18 years When they asked For men for combat I was first To volunteer On a trip train bound For Utah Beach The bloody fields of France Rolling past the southern Georgia farms As the trains pulled through the little towns They'd close the curtains tight It wouldn't do to see a black man In his country's uniform On the landing boats on D-Day I was in the second wave All the men who fought beside me Stayed in France in a soldier's grave White as four, the rows of tombstones Blue the skies of Normandy Red as four, the blood of black folk had to make the white folk free On a troop train bound for Utah Beach The bloody fields of France Rolling past those southern Georgia farms As the trains pulled through the little towns They'd close the curtains tight It wouldn't do to see a black man In his country's uniform This is Judy Ansel from the Heartland Labor Forum. We're radio that talks back to the boss. And we're proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. Cy Khan with his story behind the song Black, Red, White, and Blue. Next up, we've got a very special treat. But first, a reminder that WPFW exists because of you and thousands more who contribute to ensure that we can continue providing revolutionary radio for revolutionary times. Please go to WPFWFM.org or call 800-222-9739 and Be as generous as you can to help us reach our goal of $500 this hour. You're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour here on WPFW 89.3 FM. This next segment, as promised, is very special. It's 19 years old and was sent in by longtime union organizer and singer Joe Uline, who found it while rummaging through old computer files. It's a recording from the 2005 Great Labor Arts Exchange, the annual national gathering of workplace activists, artists, and labor educators, strengthening the labor movement with songs, poems, hip-hop, posters, cartoons, puppets, and a whole lot more. One of the highlights of the Arts Exchange is the Joe Hill Award, which honors the lifetime achievement of individuals for a body of work in the field of labor art, history, education, and culture. The 2005 winner was Anne Feeney, a fierce and tireless folk musician who carried a business card that read, Performer, Producer, Hellraiser, and, as the New York Times said, was as comfortable playing a union hall as she was on stage in a punk club. Anne died on February 3, 2021, and it is such a joy to be able to hear her once again. Here's Joe Uline, who was president of the Labor Heritage Foundation at the time. Welcome all. We are uh, going to give a very special award to a very special person. This is an award that we've given out for quite a few years to people who have excelled in labor culture and the use of art to build the movement. And our awardee this evening 
Ann Feeney is the very embodiment of what the Labor Heritage Foundation is all about. She came to a great labor arts exchange in 1988. She was a trial lawyer in Pittsburgh and had a radical and artistic streak in her. And uh, she caught the flame at this event. And within a year, she was doing her own shows. By 1991, she was on the stage at Solidarity Day with a full band and a, uh, as I recall, a gold sequin dress. Yeah. It's like, I'll never forget the performance. Yeah, right. Um, she connected with uh, Pete Seeger, who had reminded her that the anniversary of Homestead was coming up, and what would she do in her community about that? She organized a big festival, and Pete came in and sang, and then asked her, well, you're doing all this art and singing for unions, what are you going to do for your own union? She's a member of the Musicians Union, of course, and she ran for president, was elected, first woman president of the Pittsburgh local of the American Federation of Musicians. That's right. She has since crisscrossed the country doing shows in union halls and at rallies I saw her at the WTO event on November 30th, 1999 in Seattle, whipping union workers into a union frenzy everywhere she goes. She is the leading lady, although she's not a lady, she's a hellraiser if there ever was one, the leading hellraiser of labor music today. And I'd like you to welcome to the stage as we will present the Joe Hill Award this year to Ann Feeney. Sister Ann? All right. There was a rumor I was going to get this, so I bought this dress this afternoon. (laughs) It's so wonderful to be appreciated by the people that mean the most to me in the world. I've found a real family in the labor movement. Uh, I can't replace my real family. My son Daniel is here tonight somewhere. The thing I wish for everyone here is that someday you get a chance to start a song up here and feel what that feels like to hear these voices coming back. My very first labor arts exchange, I had written one song and I thought you had to sing a song you wrote. And it wasn't really a labor song, it was kind of a reggae anti-nuclear song. And when I got to the second chorus, the second time I sang the chorus, I had... 150 voices coming back in perfect harmony, including Pete Seeger's. And I'm telling you, I was hooked. And this is my home. This is my family. I love you all, and I sure appreciate this recognition. In my travels, I get to meet a lot of people who are somewhat embattled, who are in struggle. And I was just at the Regina Polk Union Women's Leadership Conference in Chicago, where fully a third of the women attending worked for United Airlines. I don't know how many of you followed what went on, but most of them had put sixty to a hundred thousand dollars of their salary into the employee stock option plan. And when United stock became worthless, they said, Well, at least we have the wonderful pension that the unions negotiated for us. And while we were at this conference, the federal bankruptcy court set aside United's pension obligations and funneled it all over to the PBGC. And at the same time, Glenn Tilton, the obnoxious CEO, there are no words to describe this man. Well, maybe there's one. Anyway, he was awarded a $450 million guaranteed pension in recognition of his resolute handling of this crisis. You could start noodling any time here. So this was the the biggest hit on Concourse C at O'Hare after the conference. We went from counter to counter singing this. Down dooby doo down down. We can shut you down dooby doo down. We can shut you down dooby doo down down. And shut you down is what we'll do. Not long ago, we flew those friendly skies. Morale was high, our stock was on the rise. Now you're giving us the royal screw. And shut you down is what we'll do. You say our wages are to blame. Bucky Bray should hang his head in shame. 
We made more money back in 82 Now shut you down is what we'll do You've thrown our lives in chaos We've given so much Those guys on top are way out of touch Bonus, what gives you the right? 450 million, tilt and tell us how you sleep at night The AFK First we tried your ESA, we gave back our pay, now you take our pensions away, your plans are destined to fail, United Workers need a raise and tell them you belong in jail. Shut you down is what we'll do. 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 Such a schmuck. <laughs> to me, that's what's made this country and really this world great. Is when people just like us can't take it anymore and are perfectly willing to file out into the streets, put our bodies on the line, and if necessary, fill the jails to get a better world. So that's what this song is about, and I'm pleased to say it's being sung by people on their way to jail everywhere. <laughs> was it Caesar Chavez? Maybe it was Dorothy Day. Some will say Dr. King or Gandhi set them on their way. If you've been to jail for justice, you're in good company. Have you been to jail for justice? I won't shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down our ways to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice? to this song Laws were made by people and people can be wrong Once unions were against the law but slavery was fine Women were denied the vote and children worked the mine The more you study history the less you can deny it A rotten law stays on the books till folks like us defy it Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand Sitting in and lying down Our ways to take a stand Have you sung a song for freedom Or marched that picket line Have you been to jail for justice Oh, you're a friend of mine Sing it with me here The folks who sang this song with me on the album John Frommer Janet Stecker Christy Amazing Pam Parker we can catch at Blues Alley. And coming up right after me, the 2003 Joe Hill Award winner from the Bay Area. We got the Ford Knox of folk music there, Faith Petrick behind me. I did get a chance to sing this in our nation's capital on April 25th, 2004 for a million and a half people. My daughter put me up to writing this verse. Those scandalous back alley days should fill our hearts with shame. There are kooks who still believe each sperm deserves a name. To save a single stem cell, they'd move heaven and earth. Try to find those hypocrites the moment we give birth. Oh, and they come to take your rights as tyrants always do. Here's a simple question that I want to ask of you. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down our ways to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice? So you're a friend of mine. Now the laws 
system fails, it's up to us to speak our peace. It takes eternal vigilance for justice to prevail. So get courage from your convictions. Let them haul you off to jail. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sweetie, yeah. Performer, producer, and Hellraiser, and Feeney, accepting the Joe Hill Award at the 2005 Great Labor Arts Exchange. By the way, this year's Arts Exchange will be held at the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago, April 18th through 21st. Details are at laborheritage.org. This is Mike Strukin from the Labor Force Podcast, and my favorite labor song is Tennessee Ernie Ford's 16 Tons. Some people say a man is made out of mud A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store The company store, owned by the factory, with workers paying on credit and always in debt, or forced to use company script, which only had value at that company store, has many echoes today. It echoes with jobs, say, in the service industry, in which demand is high and the work is intense, but the return for workers is a pittance. Or with auto workers, unable to afford the cars they make, despite working a critical status for the company. Or workers on public assistance, despite working full-time for Walmart, McDonald's, and other corporations, and many other examples of overwork and underpay. Just overall, uniquely expressed portion of worker exploitation within the clutches of hyper-capitalism, in which workers get the shaft. Lynn Marie Smith is known as the Detroit Diva for a very good reason. Here she is with the story behind the song, Union Funk. Lynn Marie Smith here, the Motown Diva. Honored to be here with you today to talk a bit about what's behind the music of the song Uptown Funk that I renamed Union Funk. Well, uh, I was working with Gail Hamilton, who is the associate director out of the academic unit of the Labor Studies Center at Wayne State University. And she was hosting the first WISE educational conference. And WISE, W-I-S-E, stands for Workers in Solidarity in Education. And she gave me a call and uh, asked me to come and share some spirit and motivation with the group. And she talked about how important for us as union members, union and non-members, to continue to grow and get an education about all the sacrifices and the opportunities that were there for us as union members, you know, to, to continue to be armed with what we needed to be in the struggle that we're in. I said, well, tell me the mission statement. I took that actual mission statement and verbatim, I took the words out of that and I just made it rhyme. So I didn't add anything new to the mission so that the rap in the song is actually verbatim the mission statement from the program. This is how it started. I said, uh, you know, this one is for that hard worker, the dues payer, the negotiator. This one 
is for the activists, the dues payer and the activists working out for peace, organizing, rallying up in the cities with our colors on, unity is strong and we'll fight to the nitty gritty. So right from her words. So then when we got to the rap, as I said, the mission statement, it just simply says, we come from different occupations, bringing leadership and communication to share the common struggles and identify common strategies we can all grow by. Building bridges, giving love and charity, power in the workplace, recognizing every face jam and it was like the words were there bruno mars had just come out with the song and like everything that i write the spirit hits me what the tune is it dictates what the tune is gonna be and right off it said uptown funk and i said oh okay i can switch that to union funk and it was just a marriage we came together as things seemed to happen in my life yay team and Union Funk was born. They loved it so much. Uh, right off, I got three opportunities out of the conference. And I mean, I, I have performed it everywhere. I performed it on recently UAW's picket line. I went to eight picket lines and did that among other songs. I've done it at the Great Labor Arts Exchange. I've basically been thrown across the country to do the song. Uh, and a lot of these pieces that I do, my whole career in the labor movement with the songs has just been incredible doing other people's music. I'm not the greatest songwriter, but I know I bleed union. And so I don't care what I'm singing. I'm gonna say union in, <laughs> I'm gonna say the power of us collectively, communion, it's gonna be, in the union vein i'll leave the the deep stuff for the we've got so many talented writers out there you know i'll leave that for them but this is my niche and this is what i was put here to do and i'm going to continue to do what i do well and that's motivating and inspiring through song and my energy to continue to propel us to do this hard work that we've been blessed to be in position to do that's the that's the story behind the Uptown Farm. Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the day 300 commercial laundresses in Kansas City walked off the job demanding a union. Mail laundry delivery drivers successfully organized the previous summer. They joined the women on the picket lines. The Employers Association had financed an open shop drive since the beginning of the war. The laundry companies refused to grant wage increases to the drivers. They also refused to acknowledge the women's demand for a union. The Women's Trade Union League tried to hold hearings about the strike at the Hotel Muehlbach, but the hotel refused to allow striking black workers into the building. As a result, their white co-workers refused to testify. When the hearings were finally moved, the women told of intolerable conditions. Laundresses complained of filthy workplaces and potential fire traps. They reported that laundry owners had put together their own private police force. These guns for hire assaulted women strikers, breaking one woman's arm, another's wrist, and injuring many more in hopes of deterring them from pressing on with their demands. In the sixth week of the strike, 25,000 more Kansas City workers called a general strike. According to historian Maureen Wiener-Greenwald, they supported the laundry workers' demands for increased wages, union recognition, and enforcement of state regulations regarding hours and working conditions. Greenwald notes the general strike was relatively peaceful until the Kansas City Railway attempted to run streetcars with scab labor. Finally, the laundry companies agreed to union recognition and later promised wage increases. They soon reneged, but the show of solidarity among workers provided key lessons for future labor struggles in Kansas City. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. That is going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. We sure hope you enjoyed it. If so, please take a moment to show your support with a generous contribution to WPFW's Winter Pledge Drive. Go to WPFWFM.org or you can call 1-800-222-9739. Thank you so much. And if you've got suggestions for guests or topics for future shows, please drop us a note, info at laborheritage.org. Our music today included Campbell's Slave Pen by the R.J. Phillips Band, Black, Red, White, and Blue by Cy Khan, We Can Shut You Down, and Have You Been to Jail for Justice, both by Ann Feeney, 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford, and Union Funk by Lynn Marie Smith. The Labor Heritage Power Hour is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. Today's show was produced by me, Chris Garlock, engineered by Mike Nacella and Kalia Chapman, right here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. Thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, the art and soul of the American labor movement. We'll see you next week. I dreamed I saw Anfini. It was on a picket line somewhere in the world where workers did combine. Cheering on the strikers with a guitar in her hand from Oregon to Ireland. Dreamed I saw Ann Feeney amid the foggy glow of the flashbang grenades outside the WTO. Singing songs against the war at a military fort or making arguments in court. I dreamed I saw Ann Feeney in the Texas hills singing songs around Torch. Kerrville, crossing every bridge she could with the wheels of a car, with some CDs in the trunk, along with a guitar. I dreamed I saw Anne Feeney, I dreamed she never fell, she was in Baja with her grandkids doing swell. Sharing free advice on how to find the cheapest flight So you can be throwing Swedish snowballs beneath the northern lights 
I saw Anne Feeney get her first dose of vaccine instead of reading of the people who died of COVID-19. In the New York Times, nice things that they said, but I so much wish we could have had her still here instead. I dreamed I saw Anne Feeney From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Here are some headlines. Israeli forces stormed the Nasser Hospital today, southern Gaza's main medical facility, hours after Israeli fire killed a patient and wounded six others inside the complex. The attack comes a day after the Israeli army said it tried to evacuate citizens from the hospital, but medics said patients were unable to safely flee and many displaced Palestinians remain there. Israeli forces have repeatedly raided hospitals across the Gaza Strip, insisting the facilities are being used as command centers by Hamas militants. Hamas denies those accusations. Meanwhile, despite growing international criticism, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu remains determined to launch a ground offensive in Rafah as negotiations for a truce have stalled. Netanyahu said on his Telegram account yesterday, quote, We will fight until complete victory, and this includes a powerful action in Rafah as well, after we allow the civilian population to leave the battle zones. Close quote. The city is the last remaining refuge in Gaza for displaced Palestinians. Among those warning against the attack are the prime ministers of Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. In a joint statement issued today, they said there is, quote, simply nowhere else for civilians to go, close quote, and expressed their grave concern that a military operation in Rafah would be catastrophic. And President Biden yesterday announced an order to shield thousands of Palestinians in the United States from being removed from the U.S. for 18 months as humanitarian conditions in Gaza continue to deteriorate. An estimated 6,000 Palestinians are eligible for the reprieve under a program called Deferred Enforced Departure which allows immigrants whose homelands are in crisis to remain in the U.S. and work legally. Others right now included under the same policy are people from Liberia and Hong Kong. In other news, Donald Trump will face a criminal trial in Manhattan next month in what could be the first ever criminal trial of a former U.S. president. Judge Juan Merchan today denied Trump's request to dismiss criminal charges stemming from hush money payments to an adult film star during the 2016 election. Trump was indicted on 34 counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Each of those felony counts carries a maximum of four years in prison. Judge Merchan said that after consultation, with the federal judge overseeing the separate election interference case in Washington, the court would begin selecting a jury in the Manhattan case on March 25th. And New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced yesterday that his administration is suing the owners of TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and YouTube for fueling the national youth mental health crisis by intentionally manipulating and creating addiction among younger users. An official press release said the lawsuit aims, quote, to force tech giants to change their behavior and to recover the costs of addressing this public health threat, close quote. The press release noted that the city spends more than $100 million each year on mental health programs for young people as more information about the potential harm to youth 
from the use of social media sites comes to light, social media lawsuits are becoming more frequent across the country. For WPFW News in Washington, 